Support for SyncBook Radio comes from listeners like you. Consider helping to make independent productions like SyncBook Radio possible by becoming a donor. Your generous gift helps to keep these unique voices broadcasting and exploring. Details about how you can help can be found at thesyncbook.com slash donate. Thanks. For chaos magicians and many other contemporary occultists, the internet serves the same purpose as the astral plane does for traditional magicians, as a kind of psychic ether that can transmit their willed intentions. Mean magic happens when something created on the internet bleeds into the real world, and it changes it. In effect, it is a kind of induced synchronicity, the psychologist C.G. Young's term for the phenomenon of meaningful coincidence, when what is happening in our inner world happens in our outer world too, without any apparent causal relation. If you substitute internet for interworld, you can see the connection. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, August 27th, 2018, and thus begins a new season of 42 Minutes. It's been a while, but I'm back, rested, and ready for adventure. We've got some really good shows lined up, and the book club is pointed at something interesting, too, for sure. So it should be another great year. If you haven't seen Alan's magnum opus SyncBook Radio Sync film yet, head over to thesyncbook.com and check it out. It is currently embedded as the header. Also, let us know how you get this podcast. The Apple Podcast app really has become a mess about a year ago, and if SyncBook Radio could do something better, reach out and let us know. But today, did positive thinking and mental science help put Donald Trump in the White House? Are there any other hidden powers of the mind and thought at work in today's politics? In Dark Star Rising, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump, historian and cultural critic Gary Lockman takes a close look at the various magical and esoteric ideas that are impacting political events across the globe. From new thought and chaos magic to the far-right esotericism of Julius Evola and the traditionalists, Lockman follows a trail of mystic clues that involve, among others, Norman Vincent Peale, domineering gurus and demagogues, Ayn Rand, Pepe the Frog, René Schwaller de Lubitsch, Synarchy, the alt-right, meme magic, and Vladimir Putin and his postmodern Rasputin. Come take a drop down the rabbit hole of occult politics in the 21st century and find out the post-truths and alternative facts surrounding the 45th president of the United States with one of the leading writers on esotericism and its influence on modern culture. Gary Lockman is the author of many books on consciousness, culture, and the Western esoteric tradition, including Rudolf Steiner, An Introduction to His Life and Work, a Secret History of Consciousness and Politics and the Occult. He writes for several journals in the U.S. and U.K. and lectures on his work in the U.S. and Europe. His books have been translated into more than a dozen languages and he's appeared in several radio and television documentaries. A founding member of the rock group Blondie, Lockman was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2006. We last spoke with him back in 2013 for episode... 112 so it's been a while but we are very happy to have him back how are you doing this evening gary oh, i'm doing very well douglas uh thank you for having me on the show again you bet so i think we're just gonna have to dive into this i don't mm. <laughs> the thing that really struck me about your book is how uh how it really got at the underpinnings of our current situation so ours is a really materialistic time but philosophy uh i mean really rings as the important feature in understanding our moment and the other interesting thing is how your book feels so current even though you know books take a long time to to get out did you have the fear that this book might land and and you know the moment would be gone Mm. well i mean i i I wrote it uh i finished writing it two years ago i mean it was finished uh at the uh, in August of um, 2016, so it was very much of the moment, and um, 
for reasons best known to the <laughs> to the secrets of the publishing world, the, the publisher sort of held on to it for a while until um, just a few months ago, and not. It came out uh, the June of um, of this year, and um, yes, um, enough had changed in between finishing it and it coming and it about to be come out that um, you know there are some bits that struck me as oh perhaps it's going to be old news, but at the same time there seemed to be you know a constant renewal of interest and in some ways a bit more uh, how should we say it uh, attention paid to some of the things that I, I, I write about uh, in the book so uh, it seems to be uh, I mean as I've said in other interviews um, it's a very different book for me because it's it's more reportage or journalistic and it's very much of the time but it, it struck me as kind of like history in the making I mean um, one thing I've said in, in some interviews that I felt was that uh, in a way history had caught up with me and what I mean in saying that is that I've been writing about um, the history of the sort of Western esoteric tradition, uh, this hermetic tradition of magic and the occult and and so on that goes back into uh, sort of, um, you know, uh, antiquity and how it's um, sort of been a counterculture throughout the West's history and it's informed Western consciousness in different ways and so on and so on. Although I've sort of written up to, say, you know, current times, uh, the New Age and things of that sort, it still was a great deal about events happening in the past and, and streams of history that, you know, were running and I'm looking at their sources and, and reaching up to us. But now the sort of thing I was writing about, which um, has been more or less on the margins of um, Western sort of consciousness and culture, at least for the last uh, th uh, three or four centuries, uh, again, the hermetic tradition, uh, when it lost its place of prestige with the rise of science and rationalism in the early 17th century, um, suddenly it seemed it was smack dab in the middle of, of uh, you know, some of the most important things going on, uh, such as the election of the president of the United States. So um, it did strike me um, as, yes, that uh, a lot of stuff was going on very, very quickly, and it was up to me to, to grab it. And uh, one, of the, one of the things I liked, I wanted to do in the book was to capture that sense of something really happening now. This was a change that was taking place, and it was changing things uh, very radically. Um, that's why I say in the book there was a certain sense that after the election, I felt and I was aware that other people feeling this, that uh, reality in a certain sense was very different than uh, it was before. Yes. And so on one hand, you talk about uh, alt-right chaos magicians almost – creating Trump as a tulpa or an egregore, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. so they're, they're unleashing this golem onto the world. But then on another, on another level, and this is what really interests me right off the bat, you had someone, I had no idea that Trump was a member of the Norman Vincent Peale congregation, which is mm -hmm. you, this whole lineage of American new thought. Could you yes. dive into new thought a little bit and, and, uh, Explain how maybe that speaks to the mm. behavior of our okay. president? Yes, yes. Well, let, let me give you a little background. I mean, new thought is a generic term for a variety of different um, philosophies um, that fundamentally say that thoughts are causative. Um, our thoughts alone can make things happen. And it's, you know, you want to call it science of mind or mental science or creative visualization, or in the case of Norman Vincent Peale, positive thinking. That's the fundamental uh, belief that by focusing on an aim or a wish intently and visualizing it very vividly and persistently with, you know, sufficient confidence um, and determination, it will happen. It will, it will, it will take place. And these sorts of ideas that the mind influences reality have roots going back to ancient um, history. Uh, uh, some of the things I've been writing about, like Hermeticism and ancient philosophies of that sort, uh, begin with this sort of premise. But let's say in American uh, history, the phrase New Thought comes from Ralph Waldo Emerson, who's the great American uh, essayist and philosopher of the 19th century. Uh, another great American philosopher and psychologist, William James, he practiced a variety of what were known as mind cure techniques in the um, early 20th century uh, in order to cure himself of uh, some nervous afflictions he had. And he even uh, lobbied against legislation that would limit the availability of uh, mind cure 
literature uh, very uh, effectively. And so uh, you have some, you know, very important people, influential people, and well-respected uh, ones who have uh, taken this seriously. Uh, but but it, it also uh, led to a, a tradition of what we want to call the prosperity gospel, or a variety of different philosophies in which you can sort of you know better your life either through self-development or gradually it, it went from health to sort of moral kind of self-development to enriching yourself uh, in more material ways. And um, Norman Vincent Peale uh, was remarkably successful with a version of this called Positive Thinking. He wrote a book called The Power of Positive Thinking. It was published in 1952. And it, it, it must be a successful uh, practice because the book itself stayed on the top of the New York Times bestseller list for practically two years. Um, he was uh, very, very successful with uh, radio program and even television and also uh, had syndicated uh, newspaper columns. And he gave sermons at the Marble Collegiate Church on Fifth Avenue and 29th Street. And some of the people who attended those sermons were the Trump family, uh, Trump's father and mother uh, and himself. And uh, they went and as, as a, a young boy, he heard uh, Peel's sermons, which were about basically uh, success, being able to achieve your aims and, and uh, uh, accomplish your, your goals and uh, things of that sort. And as a adult uh, later on in life, uh, Trump continued to attend these sermons. And he spoke of uh, Peel as his mentor. And uh, he said, I mean, he gave him high praise coming from um, uh, Trump uh, when he said that after to listening to one of Peel's sermons, he could he could sit there and, and listen to it for another hour. And uh, coming from someone who's not known to have a particularly uh, strong attention span, that that simply seems like uh, high praise. And um, he had two of his marriages uh, took two of his weddings took place in the um, in the church. And if you know any of Trump's. Um, self-help books uh, that he's written or co, you know, had co-writers on uh, of his own, like Art of the Deal, it's uh, full of uh, this um, whole philosophy of positive thinking. Um, so you have the President of the United States who's um, sort of uh, steeped in this. And the, probably the, the single most, uh, say, important insight or teaching that he walked away from Peel with was the idea that uh, facts don't matter. It's your attitude toward facts that matter. So what we think about facts or what matter more than the facts themselves. And we all know that one of the things that came uh, well, th that came to us, that was given uh, to us after Trump's election was this whole idea of alternative facts and things of that sort and the whole sort of you know, post-truth world that um, we, we, we live in now. And uh, I'm not saying Norman Vincent Peale is directly responsible for that, but certainly the idea that your intentions, how you would like things to be, can uh, with sufficient um, power and intention take precedent over you know what we used to consider to be sort of stable reality. So that's sort of one element in this uh, very complex and and strange puzzle that I found myself uh, putting together. Uh, and the other one was uh, the thing that got the, the whole book started was this um, remarkable um, incident soon after Trump's election at the annual meeting of the National Policy Institute. And this was when uh, Richard Spencer, who's the head of the NPI, and the NPI is, uh, as I said, a, a, an innocuous name for a group that uh, many people suspect to have been sort of white supremacists or certainly very far right. And he was also, Spencer was also the one who invented the, the alternative right uh, and so on. And at the start of this uh, meeting, which was held at the uh, Ronald Reagan building in uh, D.C., Spencer greeted the crowd by saying, hail Trump, you know, hail our leader, hail our victory. You know, we made this happen. We made this dream a reality. We willed him into office. And he called it their victory of the will. And as uh, was reported in uh, newspapers and magazines and websites, uh, that uh, the response to that was, you know, a resounding cheer and many, many sort of Hitler uh, salutes or Roman ones, as uh, Spencer later uh, explained. And that, you know, that, that response, all the kind of uh, Hitler salutes, got the most attention. But um, one of the many reports that I read about this pointed something else out, and this was something that a fellow named Harv Bishop uh, wrote. And Harv Bishop is a new thought blogger. He has a blog about, about new thought, and he's, he's a practitioner of it. And he said that, wow, this sounds like 
uh, Spencer and the alt-right have been using new thought techniques to help Trump get into office. You know, they were somehow using the power of the mind, power of positive thinking or the power of visualization uh, in order uh, to affect reality. And the reality they wanted to affect uh, was Trump's election. One of the interesting thoughts that I had when I was considering, you know, this idea of the power of positive thinking is perhaps when the president says something completely outrageous, it's because he doesn't, he, his, he won't allow his mind to go negative. And so it's almost like he's unwilling to, he's unwilling to accept the reality as it is because he doesn't want to be in that reality. But then it shifts everyone's reality because I've been around people like this that, you know, where they're so positive that they're unwilling to just, you know, acknowledge what, mm. what is before us. Mm. Well, I, I, I think, you know, as we say it, um, I think it all depends on, you know, the reality in question and, 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 the, and who's questioning it and, and for what reasons and all that. But uh, yes, I, I would agree. I mean, he, well, from what, I, what I've seen in different interviews and, and, and reports uh, with Trump, I mean, he's negative about other people, uh, but not about his own sort of activities and things of that sort. And, and one of the things I sort of uh, talk about in the book is this notion uh, that I borrow from the writer Colin Wilson of a psychological type he calls the right man. Uh, and the right man is someone who's unable or unwilling to ever admit to being wrong. Uh, he never admits to a mistake. He never apologizes. Uh, he's always in the right. And um, he will defend that against all at all odds at all times. And Trump himself has said on many occasions that he never apologizes. And uh, yes, he, he, he will apologize in the future if he's ever wrong about anything and stuff of that sort. I mean, in one sense, this is just kind of the usual kind of bravado of some you know very confident alpha type. But then when you're you're in a position of power and when you have when you know that he's coming from a background that is based on a, a, a mental discipline you know where it's not you know it's not really just you just sort of think that you say it to yourself all the time there's some there's some you know there's some degree of actual mental discipline involved with visualization and imagination and focus and all that and if you take any credence uh, to the idea that you know the mind actually has some kind of power and which i would say that I do, then, you know, these things step over a line from just being sort of psychological kind of profile and defenses into something that could actually, you know, um, have a positive effect in the sense that it has a real effect on things. It, it, it's, it's, it's an agent at work in, in the situation. And I think um, with Trump, it's that, um, yes, that's the whole idea is that if you do keep, you know, positive about things and you affirm what you want to happen, you will create the situation around you. you. You just don't ignore. I mean, I think this is one of the, I mean, you just ignore, you don't pay attention to um, anything that's opposite. And I mean, this is one of the things uh, that, uh, you know, basically he does is that uh, he decides, I mean, this is one of the things about Trump and all the notion that he lies all the time and he contradicts himself. And that doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter that you can point out a dozen things in, in a single day that he says that are lies or untruths and all that, because he's deciding what's true. He's deciding what's real. It's, it's the message. It's the effect. And all of that goes into the whole idea of this magical background. I mean, with him, you have, I mean, the positive thinking aspect of it is conscious. I also think that he has certain kinds of uh, natural <laughs> tendencies to, to act in such a way to create the kind of reality that he wants. I mean, he was an entertainer for a very long time. He still is. Uh, so he's able to create this kind of glamour, this kind of set the scene and create the atmosphere uh, so that he can induce the sort of effects that he that he wants uh, to take place. And there isn't that much distance between that kind of magic of the theater and you know, uh, more straightforward kind of magic. And this is where sort of the chaos magic aspect of it comes in. The other strange thing to me was more about what he is symbolically to our culture because he is so he is so much ego and so there's this kind of interplay between uh in terms of spirit so the these two worlds you know you have your inner world and your outer world and depending on which tradition you're looking at sometimes one world is privileged over the other but there's definitely an interplay but you know, speaking about the underpinnings of the material world, I mean, it seems like Trump is just this representation of, you know, ego. And, mm. you know, my, my first thought is, is, is he is he put in this position so that we can 
uh, move forward to a a less materialistic time? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, well, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, are you maybe saying that um, he's sort of the extreme example of it? Yeah, and, like an extreme uh, ego. Well, death. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. You'd be surprised. <laughs> you look at history, things can get very, very strange, and they can get very strange very quickly. So, um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess you could be it could, you could be cliched and say, oh, he's sort of the American dream turned into a nightmare and all of that sort of thing. And it is that kind of, you know, success. Go get him. Don't don't, you know, uh, let anything stand in your way. Uh, I mean, there's a, a song from the 1960s from a, a early 1960s, a group called Jay and the Americans. And they have a song called Only in America. And I mean, it, it tells his story. I mean, the, the lyrics tell exactly the same thing. It's like, you know, only in America can a guy from anywhere, you know, grow up without a dollar and become a millionaire. And it's sort of, you know, um, he didn't exactly grow up without a dollar. But so it, it's it's. This was a positive kind of thing, you know, but uh, when it's sort of uh, brought to grotesque extremes or, or taken to a kind of um, bare literalism, you know, it, it is that. It, it, it is. I mean, you know, I, I remember first hearing about Trump when I was living in New York and playing in a, in a you know, a, a rock band on Living on the Bowery in, in, in the 70s. And he was, you know, he was uh, all the – he typified all the horrible kind of glitter and you know what we would call bling now but i mean um i just said bling that's a word that comes out of the supposed counterculture of you know hip-hop and music and all that and they that, that celebrates all that kind of stuff so i mean i think he's very much epitomizes and you know perhaps focuses you know in, in, into a kind of sharp uh intensity um a great deal of the sensibilities and and values that um, are, are are prevalent today, um, uh, and um, I'm not surprised. I mean, this is one reason why, when I heard that he had put his hat in the ring, you know, uh, before the election, I immediately felt that he would win, and mostly because I thought, well, what makes most sense today? Uh, wouldn't a, a reality TV star make the perfect president? And that made sense to me because we had already been spending, you know, a great deal of time taking a lot of reality and putting it on television. And we continue to do that. It's something we've become absolutely fascinated with is watching what we call reality on television now and ignoring reality. But, you know, to speak sort of metaphorically uh, and perhaps maybe a little bit more than that, you know, after putting so much stuff into the television, it struck me as quite reasonable that something would start popping out. And one of the things that popped out was Trump. And, but he had been primed for the position that he occupies now because he spent those years as the apprentice. Um, he spent those years uh, doing exactly what he's doing now and creating the same image. And he's fulfilling it now. And I mean, that's, that's another theme throughout the book, the whole kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, what do you want to call sort of role switching between um, reality and its its simulation, between the simulacra and the real thing, and how the represented world is becoming increasingly more real with things like 3D and HD, and how the uh, the old real world is somehow uh, becoming um, crazier. It's becoming more like uh, television. And again, this seems cliche because we've been living with it for a while. But if you stop to think about it, it actually, you know, it's something that that's very, very strange. And so, in your book, you know, when you speak about before we arrived there, you were talking about synchromysticism as kind of this practice where you find those echoes between media and the internet and, and reality, and then kind of wonder at the, the synchronicities. It's interesting to me how, you know, you go back to 2007 or 2008 and you, you know, you, we're all like, it's the spiritual trajectory of the time, I guess, because people were filled with wonder and interested in that kind of thing. But then somehow, uh, you know, where did this darkness come? Like the book is called, dark star rising and mm -hmm. so like i i used to love to r listen to red ice and mm. you know it, it but then all of a sudden that became this this wing of the the alt-right mm. mm. you know yeah well i think things swing i think um you know you had um something that for for a long time many people thought would never have been possible you had a a, a black president in the states and and um i guess after his Obama's uh, time in office, um, 
many of the things that one hoped to have happened didn't happen, and many people felt disappointed, or maybe, I, I don't know, there's a variety of different reasons that happened, but it seemed to be that, yes, it's that time, you know, I, I think in a way, there's a kind of fatigue, you know, the, the whatever you want to call it, the, the liberal vision, that kind of vision, uh, sort of, you know, had high expectations, and not, not all of them were met, and there's a sort of fatigue about that. And then it seemed to be, you know, what was left to do, I mean, in a way, there was what was left for people that were on the edge who wanted to be something other than that. I mean, sadly, what was left was to drift over to a kind of far-right sensibility, and that became a kind of counterculture. And this was, I guess, the attraction to some degree of the alternative right, from what I can gather when I first, when I first became aware of them, uh, was that, you know, they were often portrayed as this new, hip, kind of, you know, conservative hipsters and this kind of thing. And I don't know, like they were in some fashion magazines and this is how you dress and that kind of thing. And, you know, it had a certain style and a certain kind of um, attraction and aura of, of something. At least it was different. And, you know, they were trying to make themselves seem you know, slightly dangerous and all that kind of thing. Things go in cycles, things go in waves and changes. And I think one of the things also that is allowing for what's happening now or made it Make, make make it almost inevitable, um, something I, I call trickle-down metaphysics, and this is the whole effect of postmodernism in general on e everyday life. And I call it trickle-down metaphysics because um, I think we're living out the results of something that the philosopher Nietzsche predicted uh, was on its way in the 1880s. Uh, in, um, a, a, a huge collection of notes uh, left after his, uh, his well, his, his going insane and then his death it was put together later on called The Will to Power. In the beginning of it, he talks about um, writing about the history of the next two centuries, the next 200 years after him. And he talks about um, this nihilism that was on its way and it was inevitable and was unavoidable. And it, the nihilism means the belief in nothing or the, the recognition that the truths hitherto held uh, to be the highest were now seen to be um, empty. Uh, they, they were not true. Uh, there wasn't a true with a capital T, either in an intellectual sense or, say, in the spiritual kind of sense. And when Nietzsche was first recognizing this, um, you know, this is com comes out of the whole idea of the death of God and, and so on, um, he realized that the people of his time would not have been uh, sensitive to it. They wouldn't have been open to this. And he even writes about this in the beginning of, of Zarathustra. Or Zarathustra comes down from the mountain and he goes, speaks to the people in the marketplace and they're not ready to hear his message. And he says, oh, you know, your, your ears are not ready for what I have to say in this kind of biblical, um, you know, sort of, uh, sort of tone. Uh, and, and he says, I, I don't speak of today and I don't speak for tomorrow. I speak for the day after tomorrow. And I, I, I think he's talking about our own time because gradually – from these sort of you know metaphysical heights, this idea that uh, all truths are relative, uh, truth is truth is subjective. Uh, there isn't any kind of absolute standard, an objective standard uh, by which we can judge uh, the you know value of truths. It's all relative to you know the person and situation and and so on and so on and variety of factors. Um, and this has come down to us today, and this is something that we just kind of accept now, and it it allows for this post-truth, alternative fact kind of world. Um, and um, I'm sure, you know, Trump probably never heard of postmodernism. If he has, it's maybe, you know, in fairly recent times or something like that, or in, in an architectural journal. But he's, you know, sort of benefiting from this on the ground, and it's kind of real politic or real metaphysic. He's just, he's just, he's not even aware of it and using it consciously, but he's able to do the kind of thing he does and get away with it because, the standards that we used to have in order to judge uh, have eroded. They, they don't work anymore. That's why, as I said, it doesn't matter how many times you can point out that he's lying or contradicting himself. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter that you know when he says something that it isn't true. All that matters is that he can say it. He's in a position to broadcast it as much as he wants. And there's a certain contempt there because he's basically saying, I, I am the truth. Um, but again, it's, it's taking advantage of something that, you know, the intellectuals of our time, you know, the deconstructionists and postmodernists, uh, very fashionable uh, philosophers, um, they're the ones who've been telling us this for the longest time now. Then what do you, what do you make of someone like, is, is his name Dugan, who is, uh, mm. what is he? He's helping Putin. He's kind of like a... Well, he's, he, he's a geopolitical analyst and scholar. Uh, Alexander Dugan is a, it has a very interesting career, and he, he comes up in this uh, context uh, because of a uh, 
talk that um, Steve Bannon gave to a select group at the Vatican called the Human Dignity Institute in 2014. This is before Trump uh, was running for office and uh, Bannon was just, you know, um, um, involved in Breitbart. Um, but in this talk that was reported on by the New York Times in February 2017, after the election, and while Bannon was on Trump's team, they were digging up stuff about him. In the midst of all the usual rhetoric that he was talking about, the Global Tea Party and Islamic fascism and things of that sort, he mentions um, an Italian esoteric philosopher named Julius Evola, uh, who in many ways is a brilliant thinker, a very controversial thinker, uh, and he's controversial because he his political leanings were to the far right. And he tried to ingratiate himself with Mussolini and also with National Socialism, and he had some modest success uh, with Mussolini. But Evola, too, strangely enough, was a practitioner of a, of a, of a strain of new thought. And just as the alt-right who read Evola, uh, Evola is one of their kind of um, you know philosophers in their sort of ten ten must read you know the the ten books that every alt-right you know person has to read. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, well, I mean, and, and, and again, it's you know it, it's like that, but still, it's also I mean, he's he's actually you know worth reading. He's he's not a raving loony. I, I don't agree with him many of his ideas, but he actually he presents them very clearly and vigorously, and he has quite a few you know cogent arguments uh, to back back up what he has to say. But in any case, uh, he too practice the kind of magic to try to affect uh, political events during his time, just as the alt-right were supposed to have done uh, with Trump. And what he wanted to do, uh, well, he he was he belonged to a, a magical occult group called the, the UR, the UR group, um, in Italy at the time, in, in the 20s, when Mussolini uh, was in power. And he wanted to use rituals, and he practiced rituals and certain magical techniques in order to imbue Mussolini's fascists with more of the ancient Roman virtues, you know. So he, 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 didn't, he didn't think the modern Italians were good enough material uh, for fascism, and he actually didn't think Mussolini was doing it right either, and he wound up arguing with Mussolini a lot, and, but he, um, he, he had a vision of even more absolute kind of fascism, and what he was trying to do was use mental powers and magic to sort of imbue these other virtues in, into the Italians. Uh, so I, I, I say all that because Bannon mentions him in this talk. And in the context of him mentioning him, he refers to someone ar around Putin who is a reader of Julius Evola as well. And he's talking about Putin um, saying that he likes him because he stands up for traditional values. And the philosophy that Evola was uh, an exponent of uh, and in which Dugan um, partakes of as well is known as traditionalism, you know, with the capital T, and it's it's a kind of fundamental esotericism, to put it in a, in a, in a very uh, short way. Um, and Bannon uh, mixes it up with you know traditional values and you know, the usual kind of thing that Putin is is supporting. But it's in that context that he he refers to Dugan, and as I said, Dugan is a uh, rather remarkable character because he started out as a um, sort of punk. Soviet dissident in, in the 80s, and then gradually through a series of metamorphoses, um, he became a figure on the establishment. And he's, um, he's he wrote a book called The Foundations of Geopolitics that came out in the late 90s, and it was a big bestseller, and it established him as an authority and scholar in this field. And the geopolitics is the whole idea how geography affects sort of world history. And he has a it's a very strange fundamental idea that there's a there's a, a primal struggle going on in history between two fundamental powers and there's what he calls the Atlanticists and these are the maritime nations that um, the the West um, uh, consists of so it's the United States the UK Europe NATO and all that uh, and then there's what he calls Eurasia and this is this traditional, organic, hierarchical, theocratic civilization that comes out of the mother of all continents, you know, the, the Eurasian landmass, which is the largest landmass on the planet. And he, he, he said throughout history, these two forces in different ways have, have you know, uh, been in conflict. But we're moving towards the, the final kind of clash, clash of the titans, you know, uh, between the two of them. And, uh, I mean, if you, if you read any interviews with him, and um, I quote some in the book, and see any of his uh, interviews on YouTube and all that, he can be quite virulent. Uh, and there's one, you know, he, he 
yelling about the American empire must be destroyed and things of that sort. Having said that, I I should point out that in recent times, because of Trump's election, uh, his whole tone towards America has got much more mellow. Um, and he's, he said Trump, Trump's election was one of the you know happiest days of his life, and he he actually asked Trump to call him. And I say in the book, you know, given the trouble that Trump has had talking to Russians, I, I wouldn't hold my breath. But um, he's um, yes, he's someone that's in Putin's circle, uh, not immediately, and it's it's unclear how much direct influence he has. It's it's claimed that he doesn't, and it's claimed that he does, and things of that sort, and there's a kind of aura of mystery, uh, which he helps to create himself, because he's sort of a, uh, an academic uh, conspiriologist, or a professional conspiriologist, and he's very much into a variety of occult, chaos magic is one thing, uh, traditionalism, and, but he plays around with a variety of different far-right uh, kind of notions. Uh, it kind of velcros different sort of political ideologies together to create a kind of fra- postmodern Frankenstein, you know, political theory that he calls the fourth political theory, uh, which basically it's all about bringing on this apocalypse so the the West can be finally crushed, and this kind of thing. And it, it's this wild, frothy brew, which in the midst of he actually has had some effect, I think, on Putin's policies. I mean, uh, I think there's good reason to believe that Putin's annexation of Crimea and his incursions in, into Ukraine uh, were informed, in, in, uh, in part at least, certainly, with um, some of Dugan's ideas that he put you know, forth in this book, The Foundations of, of Geopolitics. And boiled down to its root, is it that it's a, an I versus a we mentality? More or less, yeah, yeah more or less. It's, it's, well, it's more like a me a me versus the us kind of because it's because the west the western i you know the cartesian i uh has gradually become a me <laughs> it's just the way at least the way i put it and it's it's you know this consuming me that's constantly consuming more and more things around it and everything's available everything's negotiable nothing resists you know its desire and you know things like you know people being able to change their gender people able to change their identity you know whatever they can do nowadays they can come up with some reason why um they should be allowed to do it and you know it's somehow oppressive that they they can't and things of that sort and for, for Dugan, from his point of view, this is just complete decadence and indulgence. Uh, and and he, he talks about, you know, a traditional hierarchical, uh, again, this is where the traditional values come in, traditional gender roles, traditional family roles, um, you know, social bonding, it's the community, it isn't the independent me, you know, after, you know, you know, every me for itself, it's, you know, it's, it's this us. And this is a, this is a traditional feeling in Russia. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a, a the book about, about uh, Russia now, uh, and this is something that's part of its history. There is there's always been this uh, contrast between the, the Western sense of the individual and this Russian sense of the community. Uh, and, uh, but it's, it's, th- there's a way in which they present these Russian philosophers that, incidentally, um, in recent years, Putin has been suggested suggesting his regional governors to read and to study. Um, I, I, I don't know if Trump gives out copies of the uh, power of positive thinking, uh, but the people that Putin has been suggesting his regional governors to read are very serious you know, uh, philosophers. And um, they all are trying to arrive at a kind of conception of the community in which the individual is not completely submerged in the community, but is not you know, completely disconnected from it, you know, is, is not atomized in the way that they see the left, uh, uh, the West. So, I mean, there's, what do you want to say there, put it bluntly, there are good ideas mixed in with lots of really strange ideas, and they're often presented in rather radical and controversial kinds of ways. Uh, but yes, fundamentally, that's what it is. It's, it's this kind of me versus, uh, there's the individual versus the community kind of thing. And um, basically, the idea is that the, the West has had its day. I mean, it's the, the West has been in decline at least for the last century. There's like a whole industry of books about the decline of the West, and um, you know, uh, Dugan, you know, is is in that kind of uh, canon. But he, you know, he had, and again, he also expresses this traditional sort of apocalyptic sense that's part of the Russian character. This whole bring bring on, you know, the end of the world. You know, immunitize the eschaton, <laughs> and uh, you know, the whole idea is in uh, William F. Buckley's uh, phrase. Um, the whole idea is that we we can't wait for the end of the world. We have to bring it on, and it's the ascent sense that at, at the end would, would mean a transformation into some other kind of radically different uh, way of being. Um, and so you have these very, very, you know, wild, um, exhilarating, but also, you know, very paranoid ideas flying around. And, you know, they're actually 
reaching people that have power. I mean, one of the things uh, about Dugan, I think, is that he's actually, to, to some degree, uh, achieved what Evola wanted. Evola didn't really have as much effect on you know the the, the people in power at the time that he wanted to, but uh, Dugan seems to have. You know, he's sort of walking down the corridors of power, whereas like Evola kind of got to the door and didn't really get inside that often. Well, so we're just about out of time, but I'm curious, in, in this instance, you were writing this book kind of in the moment as it's happening. Do you have, after doing that, some perspective of where things are headed? I'm more of the same. One of the things I say in the book is, uh, again, is half tongue in cheek, but I, I consider um, the idea that we can see Trump as the singularity. This was the sense I had when um, I, I woke up that morning and many other people did as well. And we saw that he was elected and I thought, oh, my God, I never thought this would actually happen. And that was the feeling when things change. And, you know, singularity is this event where the normal rules of things break down. So the black hole, the normal laws of physics break down. Um, in new age sort of uh, philosophy, millenarian philosophy, the singularity is an event. Down the line, it was going to be 2012, some years back, and you know, I'm sure there's another date down the line when, when suddenly things would change. And oh, again, we were just talking about there with, um, you know, with Dugan, and that, that's a long tradition in, 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 the, in the Russian uh, consciousness, this whole idea of this kind of kingdom of heaven that, that's going to happen at some point. But I'm not saying... <laughs> Trump's the kingdom of heaven, but he certainly has made things different. And I, I think we've entered this time when, yes, the, the old ways are breaking down. I mean, uh, one of the people that I've been studying for many years now and I've written about in a few of my books is a um, little-known German-Swiss philosopher named Gene Gebser, who died in the 1973. But in the 40s, he wrote a book called The Ever-Present Origin and it was translated into English in the 80s. And I can't go into detail about it, but he talks about humankind going through what he calls different structures of consciousness. And these these last for a certain amount of time, and then they kind of break down, they dismantle. And there's a period of sort of chaos and disruption before the next sort of structure settles in. And he said that what we were experiencing um, when he was writing the book in the 40s, and then as he saw continuing on until you know he died in the early 70s was that we were we were experiencing the breakdown of what he called the mental rational structure and that's fundamentally the breakdown of this kind of cartesian newtonian enlightenment view of reality you know logical you know scientific material and that kind of sense uh, that's starting to just dismantle itself and it it's been that the dismantling takes a while um, we're starting to feel it i would say on the ground now Again, this is kind of trickle down. You know, it started in scientific terms, let's say, with you know the rise of quantum physics, um, which we all kind of know in a pop sense. But you know, we we kind of adjusted to it now. We you know we talk about quantum leaps and everyday speech and all that kind of thing. But it it hasn't really affected the way we deal with the everyday world. But on a more cultural sense, when the humanities started to <laughs> take themselves apart with postmodernism, deconstructionism. That's led to what, you know, I would say, you know, what we're going through now, this post post-truth world. So I, I think we're going we're going to go through this kind of period of disruption, uncertainty, increasing chaos for a while. And we have to write it out. And, you know, uh Gebser talked about the next structure appearing, what he called the integral. And that's what we're aiming for, but that doesn't happen by itself and it's no picnic. Uh, we, we have to make it happen. So uh, if you don't want the end of the world in the way that someone like Dugan wants, you have to work to bring on the integral structure of consciousness. Well, that was 40 even two minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. You bet. You've been listening to Gary Lockman on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Check out his website at garylockman.co.uk. For, for more information about the SyncBook, our guest, to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others, as currently all the SyncBook radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And let us look out on the horizon then and see what dark stars are coming into view.
fantasies might seem a little sharp worn. I'm sure you've heard it all before. I wonder what's the right form. Love song written for you. It's been going down for years. But to sing what's in my heart seems more honest than the tears. I am curious. You wanna hurry us? song a bust I don't care Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Douglas. You bet. I'm I'm uh, a little younger than you. I'm just curious, uh, <laughs> in terms of living through the the Nixon years, it, mm-hmm. do, you, do you catch any echoes in that way, um, or is it totally uh, different? Because you know, I I do see some rhymes every now and again, but I just don't have the context of have been you know. Have... Well, I mean that's that that's going to come up the Watergate thing that that that's what's going to come up you know I guess, but I I just think it's different because it's not only political, and I think also that you know Nixon was somebody who you know he was an old political hand he'd been around you know for a long time, um, in fact he was consoled by uh, Norman Vincent Peale. Uh, Peel was uh, 
you know, uh, well, uh, I, don't, I don't know if Nixon was a devotee, but he certainly, you know, knew uh, Norman Vincent Peale, and, and Norman Vincent Peale was a great supporter of the Republicans and, and so on and so on. Uh, but I just think the whole feel, you know, there's, I don't know how to say it, there's, um, yes, we, you know, there, were, there was all distrust around that and so on, but still, you know, things carried on more or less the same afterwards, and there was a sense of, okay, you know, we, we saw through this and justice has been done and so on. But I think now there's more of a threat, and you also didn't have the huge support for Nixon, I don't think, the popular support in the same way that you have for Trump. I, you, you, have, you have, as far as I can tell, you still have millions of people in the States that would, you know, would it, they don't care. Uh, they're not interested in any of the, you know, evidence it's they they want him because he he provides you know something he, as I say he provides a certain emotional um, content for them a kind of sense of meaning or something like that so I think yeah I mean on on the strictly kind of uh, you know underhanded sort of um, I don't know quasi criminal kind of stuff then yeah you know it's, that that'll be the reference Watergate but I just think the the atmosphere which is taking place is broader. Um, and I don't think Trump's going to, I'd, again, I'm, I'm no political analyst, but I'd, I'd be surprised if he went down easy. Okay. <laughs> I guess it's just, who's just... got the guns? Who's got the guns in the country? <laughs> <laughs> All those nice liberals don't have them. No. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I love the book. I hope that okay, well, it, it, like you were saying, friends. yeah, I hope it breaks through <laughs> to, a. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, it's up to us. I mean, it's history's caught up with us. That's that's the thing that came to me. It's like, okay, this is it's happening now. I I don't mean to give you a, a pep talk, but it's that's what's happening now. So, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, and uh, I just think, yeah, we have to be awake to that. Okay, I'll let you go. Thank you very much. Let me know when when this is up, and okay. um, yeah, we'll stay in touch. Okay, you take care. Right, take care. Bye you, bye. Bye. In America, can a guy from anywhere go to sleep a pauper and wake up a millionaire? Only in America, can a kid without a cent get a break and maybe grow up to be president? Only in America. Giant step and reach right up and touch the 